This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 7th of April. And on the programme this morning, we looked at teacher burnout and whether it's starting to improve since the stress of the pandemic has faded. Last year, Dubai Schools Authority found over two thirds of teachers were struggling. We heard from stressed educators and a psychologist who's been helping them with their workload and anxiety. Plus, we heard from you. Plenty of teachers got in touch to give us their views. Meanwhile, after Dubai's private education authority released their schools inspection report, we heard from the CEO of the Dubai Schools Inspection Bureau, Fatma Belrahif, about how schools are improving. And we also found out what parents should read into the results with Fiona McKenzie from the consultancy Carfax Education. Meanwhile, if you're looking for cheap books, we now know where you can find them because the Big Bad Wolf book sale is back in town. And Dubai's Rashid Centre for People of Determination have partnered with Amazon to create a range of gift cards for Eid. Kalika Tripathi from Amazon told us how the initiative started. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello, yes, welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to our special schools programme. It is Eye on Education in partnership with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai and it is our opportunity to look through all the top education headlines that have been crossing our desks over the last few days. Plenty of hot topics to discuss on the programme today. We'd love to get your comments at any stage so please do save this in your phone. It is 4001 is the text or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Now as ever, producer Jennifer Crichton joins me in the studio now to talk through some of the top stories stories that we've been looking at over the last few days. Jen, thanks for coming in. How are you? I'm good? good, thank you. I'm very pleased to hear it. Now, parents across Dubai have, of course, been carefully checking their children's school rating this week. That's after the Knowledge and Human Development Authority released their inspection results. How did the schools of Dubai fare? Well, overall, the results are good. 25 schools showed improved performance from the previous inspection in 2019 and 20 were rated outstanding. But parents are not just checking for quality, of course, they're also checking to see if their fees are set to go (laughs) up. And that's because schools that maintain or improve their ratings will be allowed a raise of up to 6% after a fees freeze for three years. Speaking on the agenda, Fatma Belrahouf, the CEO of Dubai Schools Inspection Bureau at the KHDA, said parents should be pleased with the results. It shows how our schools have maintained their quality with many continuing to improve. Teachers and leaders are invested in their students and this is a great confidence in the educational landscape in Dubai. The 20 schools are providing world-class education and 39 are close behind. She also explained how the inspections are carried out. A team of international inspectors spend almost four days at the school. During this time, they work closely with the school leaders, teachers, students and parents to evaluate the quality of provision and outcomes. They use the UAE, Unified School Inspection and Evaluation Framework, and the activities conducted by the inspectors include lesson observations, data analysis, uh, reviewing the students' work, 
meetings with parents, leaders at all levels and governors. Now, Fatma also explained to us what exactly has been improving in those schools. 25 schools have improved their ratings with more than 39,000 students benefiting from this positive change. Uh, We're seeing an improvement in students' performance in international assessments. Students are learning and engaging with the curriculum in interesting and effective ways. The better schools are creative and innovative in how they deliver the curriculum using a wide range of teaching strategies and learning resources. Parents are more involved in their children's education and communication with schools have improved. Schools are aware of the need to promote students' well-being and this is a key priority for schools. The release of these inspection results coincides with school re-enrolment deadlines for the next academic year for many schools. So parents can make informed and timely decisions about which school they want to choose for their children and how much they're going to pay. And Dr. Saima Rana, Chief Education Officer for GEMS and the principal of GEMS World Academy Dubai, says any fee increases there will be invested back into the school and staff. It will help support great teaching, great learning, great resourcing for our children. We're still invested in our estate. We're still invested in our teachers. We're still invested in our resources. And, you know, you can you just need to walk around our schools and look at the massive investment that we have made as a company. Alan Williamson is the CEO of one of the country's biggest school groups, Talim. Speaking on the agenda earlier this week, he said it's a challenge for schools to increase their rating in the inspections. You need to have 61% of the the 90 plus indicators at the next level. And then there are four key judgments, uh, teaching and learning, leadership, self-evaluation and student progress. If you manage to get those four uh, up, then you move the rating. Right, that's Alan Williamson there. Now, of course, we will be finding out what parents should read into the school inspection results a little bit later on. We'll be joined by Fiona McKenzie from the Educational Consultancy, Carfax Education. OK, let's take a look at one of the other big stories making headlines this week because it's travel safety. Because there's a concerning new study out of Sharjah suggesting that 50% of pupils wouldn't know what to do if they became trapped in their school bus. Do you know, even saying that line gives my sort of grips my heart slightly. It's one of those, I think it's one of those really big fears, obviously, for parents here in the UAE. And my children don't even get on the bus, but your boy does, doesn't he? Yeah, my boy does. And to be fair, the the monitors on his bus are fantastic and they WhatsApp us when he gets on and they WhatsApp us when he gets off and they bring him off the bus. So it's it's something I try not to worry too much about, but it does sort of strike fear into your heart, I think, as a, as a parent. And Sharjah's Child Safety Department, so they collaborated with the Emirates Civil Defence Authority for what was essentially a sort of social experiment, targeting school bus using pupils aged from six to eight at an unnamed public school in Sharjah. And they left each of the youngsters alone in a school bus under close monitoring to see if they would work out how to exit the vehicle. Now, I was wondering whether my boy would manage this, and I don't think it's something I've ever talked to him about. And it seems I'm not alone because only half of the children surveyed managed. The research aimed to see whether they knew how to summon attention from passers-by in the unlikely event that they became trapped in a vehicle. And with only 50% having successfully done so, officials are now urging parents to talk to their children about the importance of taking action to summon help should they 
ever find themselves in that scenario. Well, I suppose in the heat of the summer, it's that word urgent that becomes so important because you can't sit around and wait because you'll get dehydrated and dizzy. And so you, as a child, you really do need to start banging on the window immediately. And it's so funny because I bet it was the well-behaved little girls who didn't bang on the window, whereas my chimp-like boys would have just <laughs> would have been any excuse. They'd have found the hammer and broken themselves out, no doubt. But it is interesting that that is a conversation that here in the UAE you do need to have with your children just because of the heat. Absolutely. And of course, we have seen some horrific cases in the past. Oh, gosh, that, just awful. You know, yeah. the, and the, the regulations around this have, have been significantly tightened as a result but it is one of those conversations that it's only when this kind of story comes up and you go actually I'm not sure if I've had that conversation yeah and it's just a it's it's a bit like telling your children not to go too near water not to go near the edge not to walk too close to the you know not to walk on the curb of the road all of those types of things if you have the conversation then they're easily protected and, and it's just about remembering to do it let's talk about another subject that you need to have the conversation about with your children because uh, over in the united states there's been a really significant development on a subject that we discuss often here on ion education and that is children's online safety That's right. And and news out of Utah is that the state is set to adopt some of the world's strictest regulations on childhood social media use. Now, two new bills have this week been signed into law there that sharply restrict the use of social media platforms and apps for everyone under 18. Not only will teenagers and children now need express parental permission to set up any sort of profile, the law will also mandate social media companies to verify the age of of all users. Now that's for the first time ever. Until now those companies have only asked users their age, which makes it far easier for youngsters to set up accounts without their parents' knowledge. What's more, once this legislation comes into force next year, parents will be able to access their kids' accounts, the apps won't be allowed to show children any ads, and accounts for kids and teenagers will be locked automatically between 10.30pm and 6.30am without parental permission. Now, the state says the move is essential to safeguard child safety, but the big question now is whether, as rumoured, US Congress will follow the lead with stricter national regulations. That is absolutely fascinating. I never thought that I would agree with the uh, with the governing body of Utah. No, but on indeed. that one, it sounds awesome. Sounds really sensible. And all these social media companies who suggest that literally it's an impossibility to properly check the age of every single one of their users. Well, turns out if you make it law, they figure out a way, don't they? Well, this is the thing. And you only need to look at the algorithms, the way that the ads target users to know that technologically, It's not impossible to verify the age of users. It's just a lack of willing, isn't it? That is a really interesting topic, one that we probably ought to look at a little bit more right here on the agenda in the coming weeks and months. Jen, thank you very much. Lovely update on all the top news stories that we have been seeing this week. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to Ion Education. Georgia here. We've got two hot topics on Ion Education this week. One is those school inspection reports and how teachers should read them. We'll come to that in about half an hour or so. But first up, we want to talk about 
teacher stress because this week marks three years since the UAE's first complete lockdown. You know, it sort of started where we were allowed out in the day, but we had to stay in at night. Around about on the, I think it was like the third of April, fourth of April, that was when we couldn't go out day or night. So that was three years ago, unbelievably. And it is a year since a KHDA study shone a spotlight on the impact that shift had had on the nation's teachers, that shift to distance learning. Back then, over two thirds of teachers interviewed across Dubai said they were struggling to switch off from work, almost double the number that reported a significant lack of work-life balance before the pandemic. Now, that research is yet to be repeated locally, but new studies this week out of the UK suggest that the situation's actually got worse worse there, with just 8% of teachers saying they feel supported in their mental health there now. And that really got us thinking about the reality for teachers here and whether or not the picture has changed for them in the last 12 months. Back then, about a year ago, we actually spoke to Camilla Shakarchi. Now, she's a teacher who quit after the pandemic and set up her own tuition firm instead. She told us it felt like she had little choice at the time. One of the major circumstances that led to it was the way the demands fell upon teachers, especially in this region of the world. There was very little respect for protected time for teachers to be able to do things like plan their lessons and grade. And they were always continuously asked to do extracurricular activities and spend more time doing things. So when their prep periods were there, they'd be asked to substitute for teachers that were absent, losing that protected time, which means we took that all home with us. We completely lost the division between work and home, and it completely got out of balance. When COVID struck and everybody went online suddenly, it was just expected that teachers would be immediately able to make the switch. And I was lucky I was able to, but the demands on our time and our students making everything available virtually that was normally done on one-on-one basis, as well as prepping lessons so that they could be done asynchronously with people in the different world. The demand was so high and there was no accommodation for time or for preparation or for preparedness. And then the fallback from it returning after COVID with this obvious lag in students' achievement and different abilities because of the gaps in learning, there was a sudden outcry by parents that was actually also put back on teachers rather than realizing that this was a world pandemic that was really difficult and that everybody was in the same boat. Now, back then, she said urgent action was needed across the sector to protect teachers' downtime and to ensure that they weren't working around the clock. What needs to really happen is to protect teachers' time, to let teachers have the time during the day when they're supposed to be, to use that time to do things like grade and prep and have meetings, but also to make sure that they're not getting contacted by students or by even administration after working hours and to respect that things like weekends and breaks are also for teachers. They shouldn't be teaching all day from 7 o'clock till 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock, 4.30, depending if there's meetings, and then taking home two, three, four, five hours of work with us. There needs to be a maintenance of the work-life balance, and that can only happen if we look at workload and make sure it's fairly distributed and make sure that their time is protected. Now, while Camilla said that she was considering returning to teaching, largely because she missed the daily interaction with students so much, she admitted she really did feel scared by the prospects. I miss teaching. It is my profession and it's something that's been a part of my life and will be a part of my life forever. And so I did go back and I'm considering going back full time, but I'm not going to lie. I'm very fearful for my mental health and for what's going to come. And I'm in a very good school that is aware of these pressures, so they're mitigating it. But I feel that it would be very easy to go back to those demands. 
So interesting there to hear from Camilla. I feel like I have a much better sort of understanding of how it feels for teachers and and the sort of the task that they're required to fulfill when they're not face to face with the students. If you're a teacher listening to that now, listening, I should say, um, I certainly need my coffee this morning, don't I? If you're a teacher listening to that right now, please do get in touch with us at 4001 or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 I know it is the school holidays at the moment, so you might actually have a chance to get on your phones and send us a message. And we really would love you to join the conversation because we just want to find out whether things have got better. Uh, and to discuss that further, I'm now joined in the studio by Dr. Kiran Hillier. She's a psychologist and an assistant professor of psychology at Heriot Watt University in Dubai. Joining me now in the studio, Dr. Hillier, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Uh, well, so now what's so interesting is that you are going to be able to see this conversation from two vantage points because you're a psychologist and I know that you treat some teachers. Mm-hmm. But also you're a teacher yourself at Heriot Watt University in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that work-life balance can be difficult for any of us to achieve in a job. And certainly I find it very difficult. But sure. what are the particular challenges when it comes to, to teaching in your view? Uh, well, certainly the research suggests and when you speak with teachers, you get a lot of um, confirmation of this is, uh, as was touched upon um, by your previous guest, uh, is the workload. So it is just not feasible in a teacher's contracted working hours to do all of the work that's expected. Um, and that seems to have just gotten worse uh, over the course of since COVID happened and since we last spoke a year ago. So a lot of it is admin, um, but also as she touched upon, it's these wearing a lot of different hats. Um, so they're also providing pastoral care for students and they are helping out with extracurricular activities and they are stepping in when um, other teachers are away because schools tend not to bring in additional support when um, someone goes on maternity leave, for example. So either that person who's on leave is still expected to work to some degree um, or other people are are expected to pick up um, that extra work. Uh, And because teachers are so passionate about what it is that they do and they want to be providing good services for students, then you have this real catch-22 whereby teachers will try their very best um, to plug those holes as much as they can um, because they will feel guilty if they try to enforce those boundaries because then they're worried about the impact it's going to have on the students. Um, But then you have to some extent where schools are exploiting that um, and taking advantage of that. Uh, You know, I've had clients who have been told, if you're really passionate about the job, you will make it work. Wow. Um, <laughs> which is go, oh, okay, that's that's not good. Um, I mean, it's a message that I'm sure lots of people have heard in other professions as well. Sure, but yes. The, but the situation here is that you're dealing with children. Mm. Like they care about the children. Right, yeah. And it's not like they care about the client, you know, trying to get the best you know, I don't know if you're working in digital media trying to get the best package out for the client. Mm-hmm. The people that you're dealing with, the client is children. Right. Yeah. And it has such a huge flow on effect. I mean, teachers are so important in regards to a student's experience of education, their love for different subjects, their ideas about careers that they want to go into, enhancing their self-esteem, building up their skills, identifying difficulties and referring them on um, so that those 
those can be accommodated for as much as possible. So, yeah, there's that um, real concern for teachers. I don't want any students to fall through the cracks. So if I'm not there um, doing this extra stuff, then what are the potential implications for the students? This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the show. Yes, we're taking a look at the mental health of our teachers on Eye on Education this morning, as it has now been one year since the KHDA's Adults at School Wellbeing Survey showed that over two-thirds of teachers were struggling to ever switch off from work. Lots of lovely messages coming in on this. Please do keep them coming. Join the conversation on 4001, or you can WhatsApp us for free, 04871 uh, Anonymous messages at the moment. Uh, this, um, Oh, actually, Mahira, Mahira rather says, Hi, I work as a school counsellor, and I can tell you that my experience has been that the reason why we have experienced teacher stress is predominantly because classroom management has become harder post-pandemic. The dysregulation in class by students has increased. Perhaps a focused effort towards student regulation could help the stress of teachers. When teachers feel competent in what they do, it does relieve the stress. That is interesting. They're struggling to keep their students' attention by the sounds of it. Another message here, which is anonymous, as a parent trying to pull energy out of any reserve to deal with our three children. Imagine a teacher dealing with 30 kids, each with their own difficulty and behaviour. And teachers expected to give all they have, not to mention the extra activities, parents, school accreditation targets. It's insane. Teachers must be looked after. So that gives you a a sense of the temperature of the nation here. But with the pandemic and homeschooling gradually slipping back into our memories, have things got better for teachers? And if they are still stressed, what impact could that have on our children and their learning? Joining me in the studio, I've kept her with us, is psychologist Dr. Kiran Hillier. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Harriet Watt University, Dubai campus. Now, Dr. Hillier, is stress something that you have directly seen in your practice? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, And it is getting worse. Uh, So, I mean, in terms of research, uh, when people were looking at this, stress rates were around 72% amongst teachers um, uh, in 2021. Now that's gone up to about 75%, um, which is a relatively small increase, but it's an increase. It's not getting any better. Um, And so I think uh, what our two contributors have just talked about there sort of really hit the nail on the head in regards to um, post-pandemic, we would like to think, oh, this is this will make it easier for teachers. But you do have all of the um, consequences of the pandemic in regards to students falling behind um, and those concentration and attention difficulties because they had a year, two years where they could kind of do what they wanted because it wasn't being monitored. So they might be playing on four different devices um, whilst they're learning online and now they're back in class and have to try to concentrate on this one person speaking. Um, And then you have social anxiety issues that are coming up for students as well now that they are interacting with each other face-to-face. There have been anxieties about... um, sense of being judged, the idea of giving a presentation in class um, that they're really not comfortable with and how you try to manage that. Because if you then don't build those soft skills, then the students will get, you know, that anxiety is going to generalize. It's going to get worse. Mm. Um, And those are the important skills whereby if you're working, you're going to need to be comfortable 
talking to people and giving presentations. So we want to build that skill for you. We absolutely do. And I mean, how does the stress manifest for teachers who come to see you as, you know, as their their counsellor? You know, do they, is it as simple as they just can't switch off or is it manifesting in different ways? Yeah, so I'd say the most frequent one you see is this inability to switch off. Um, so they're constantly thinking about their job. Um, they are doubting their decision making. They are worried about, oh, maybe I need to go back and sort of relook at that um, piece of work or that lesson plan that I've devised. Do I check to see if someone's replied to an email? So, you know, we're meant to be trying to relax and switch off and your brain gets ready to go to bed and all of those physiological responses happen to help you rest and recuperate. That's not happening because your brain is constantly switched on and it's this very hypervigilant state of I need to be checking out for that latest email or the next thing that I need to do. Um, so that's that's a big one, um, mm. that inability to, to switch it off. Um, and then you have sense of guilt and shame if they do try to do that. Um, and then at the same time, guilt and shame because then struggling with that and so then they're worried about the implications it's having on their relationship with their partners or their own children or their um, friends and family. So they feel really um, torn and pulled in two very different directions. And so there's this constant battle internally going on about, well, how do I, I, I can't do both of these things simultaneously, so I have to make a choice. And therefore, it feels like I am failing in one area if I try to allocate more time and resources to the other one, um, which is, you know, very difficult then for people to try to make peace with that. So I think this must, what you've just been saying, must really ring true for the person that's just sent in a message to me who is remaining anonymous. Uh, this person is a teacher, they're head of maths, which is, of course, a core subject. Mm. They say that the amount of pressure put on the core subjects during inspection time, for example, is completely unbalanced. The majority of the inspector's time is spent in the core lessons observing and meeting with those heads of department and picking apart the data. I am envious of teachers who don't teach those subjects, which is, of course, you know, they have to have the inspection time, which is every year. Now, I taught in pre in Dubai pre-pandemic and I loved it. I taught in the UK during the pandemic and just after, but no problems. But I'm now back in Dubai again. I work through breakfast and lunch. I cover other lessons at least once or twice a week. I go home, have dinner and work at least two evenings a week and on a Sunday. Mm. It's the first time in my life I'm waking up in the middle of the night worried about work. I've never suffered from anxiety before, but I'm literally losing sleep now. I blame myself for wanting to do a good job, but not having enough time to do everything. It's not what I moved back to Dubai for and it's definitely unsustainable. I'm not planning on quitting and I'll stay in my job, but I need to figure out a way to not get completely burnt out. My mm. goodness, what advice would you give to that poor person? <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's great that he is able to identify that. Um, and it's one where, you know, he raises this really interesting issue around these KHDA inspections. Um, I do think they are incredibly stressful for uh, the staff and um, in terms of an actual indication of quality, it would be much better to be doing things like spot checks whereby people aren't aware that someone's going to be coming in because student, uh, you know, the school is notified a week or so beforehand and so then is what they present in that moment an actual indication of, of the typical delivery. Um, and then he touched upon, you know, the core uh, topics. 
And so then, yes, there's a lot of pressure on um, those teachers because there's so much emphasis on those subjects. But on the other hand, you've got teachers who um, do the non-core subjects and so then they feel pressure around, well, if the school is going to cut costs, I'm the first thing that they're going to get rid of, um, like arts or sports and things, which is so important for students' mental health, but it's not seen as a core subject um, in terms of the rating system. So... All of that is then like coming together. So, I mean, in terms of advice, it would be a matter of um, a lot of stuff that I talk about with teachers is um, are you doing the best that you can? Um, Mm. You know, what is uh, the expectations that you're putting on yourself? Um, And are those expectations coming from you? Uh, because, you know, you, you do want to do a really good job, but then are you um, putting quite unrealistic expectations on yourself? Or is that coming from the school? Uh, and can you then be able to step away and go, I've done as much as I can because I need to have a system that is sustainable because we have a real issue for schools where you've got data that suggests, depending on the research that you look at, Anywhere between a third of teachers and 63% of teachers are thinking of leaving. That I mean, that's going to be a, a real problem because Huge already problem. we're facing a massive shortage of teachers, particularly in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can see that having a massive knock-on effect. Dr. Kieran, it's been lovely to have you join us in the studio. This is a subject that we could carry on discussing for, for hours mm. by the sounds of it. So it's definitely something we should revisit. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. It's been a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank, Thank you for having you. me. Thank you. That was Dr. Kieran Hillier, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Heriot Watt University Dubai campus, joining us right here on the Dubai Eye station on the Agenda program on specifically our Eye on Education program. Another message just come through saying, hello, I've been teaching for 25 years. The root of the problem is not post-pandemic, but rather the system itself. Education per se is gone. Education in the UAE has become a competition of achieving ratings and gaining studies. Thus, the focus and pressure on teachers is not education anymore, but instead meeting expectations for businesses' purposes. The students are the ones being robbed. Ooh, strong words there, sir, from you or madam, whoever it is who just sent that message in. Uh, But very interesting words indeed. And I know that could be a feeling that is felt widespread across the world for those who are in fee-paying schools. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, yes, welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to our special schools programme, Eye on Education. And taking a look now at those uh, school inspections because parents across Dubai have been carefully checking their children's school rating. That after That's after the Knowledge and Human Development Authority released their inspection results. Now, the KHDA look at private schools in Dubai. Uh, they also keep a record of how those schools have been in improving. Overall, the results are good. 25 schools showed improved performance from the previous inspection in 2019 and 20 were rated outstanding. But parents are not just checking for quality. They're checking to see if their fees are going to go up. And that's because schools that maintain or improve their ratings will be allowed a raise of up to 6%. That's after a fees freeze that lasted three years. 
Now, speaking on the agenda, Fatma Belrahif, who is the CEO of the Dubai Schools Inspection Bureau at the KHDA, said parents should be pleased with the results. It shows how our schools have maintained their quality with many continuing to improve. Teachers and leaders are invested in their students, and this is a great confidence in the educational landscape in Dubai. The 20 schools are providing world-class education, and 39 are close behind. Now, she also explained how the inspections are actually carried out. A team of international inspectors spend almost four days at the school. During this time, they work closely with the school leaders, teachers, students and parents to evaluate the quality of provision and outcomes. They use the UAE Unified School Inspection and Evaluation Framework. And the activities conducted by the inspectors include lesson observations, data analysis, Uh, reviewing the students' work, meetings with parents, leaders at all levels and governors. Now, Fatima also described what's actually been improving in schools from the point of view of her inspection bureau at the KHDA. 25 schools have improved their ratings with more than 39,000 students benefiting from this positive change. Uh, We're seeing an improvement in students' performance in international assessments. Students are learning and engaging with the curriculum in interesting and effective ways. The better schools are creative and innovative in how they deliver the curriculum using a wide range of teaching strategies and learning resources. Parents are more involved in their children's education and communication with schools have improved. Schools are aware of the need to promote students' well-being, and this is a key priority for schools. Now, of course, the release of these inspection results coincides with school re-enrollment deadlines for the next academic year. So basically, it means that parents can make informed and timely decisions about which school they want to choose for their children. They'll also get a sense of exactly how much that school is going to cost. And Dr. Rayma, sorry, Dr. Seyma Rana, who is Chief Education Officer for GEMS and Principal of GEMS World Academy Dubai, told the agenda that she found the approach of the inspectors to be very encouraging. You know, we know that the framework that's being used is a framework that was uh, written very many years ago, before COVID actually um, came along. Um, But what I found very interesting, and when I speak to my colleagues here at GEMS Education, um, is that actually the inspection teams uh, were, I think, very well equipped and prepared to really focus on the inclusion agenda. And I felt the discourse of, because I'm a principal myself and I was uh, inspected myself um, at Gemswell Academy, um, the discourse that we had was one which very much focused on the inclusion agenda, not just for the the students, but actually for the um, entire school community. So, for example, uh, well-being was looked at very, very carefully, uh, transition into school, because, of course, we've had an influx of uh, expatriate students coming into uh, Dubai, but also refugee children, as we know, the war in Ukraine and Russia, uh, refugee children coming in as well. So that transition of onboarding children and families into our schools here was was something that I felt was very much a focus. And and the last thing I think that was perhaps not very, not necessarily different, but had a, um, a huge focus on was the progress of all students, regardless of the starting um, point of any student. So looking at students of all abilities and really carefully um, and with a detailed, nuanced approach. 
Now, of course, GEMS is one of the biggest school providers in the country. Another one is Talim. And a little bit earlier this week, we spoke to Alan Williamson, who is their CEO. Uh, he said there is an improved focus on the student. He agreed with Dr. Sema Rana. Something that the KHDA have been very passionate about. Uh, um, it's, it's a worldwide uh, phenomenon, uh, student well-being. Uh, at the moment, the issues with young people and mental health and, and schools being very aware of that. So the first, for the first time, we were graded on, on well-being as well as student progress, student academics, etc. So I, I, I think that's been very, very welcomed by the school community. Um, certainly in our schools, uh, we, we were a, a four is the top grading for that in schools like Dubai British School, Emirates Hills and Jumeirah Park and Uptown. They, they were all given a four and, of course, Greenfield that moved up. OK, so there's your reaction from the CEOs, the principals, the heads of these big school groups. But how should parents react? That is a lot harder to know. I mean, I certainly looked at the school reports with a certain amount of... I suppose mixed feelings because I wanted the school that my children go to to go up to outstanding because I wanted to feel that the huge fees that I pay was therefore going to pay for something that was good quality. But then I knew that if they went up in the rankings, then that might mean that we would be paying more school fees. So it was kind of it was sort of mixed emotion. Plus, let's be honest, as as a layperson, as a parent, I don't really understand how you're supposed to judge these school reports. I didn't really know what I should be looking at exactly. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education. And we are discussing... Dubai's school inspection results on the programme today. That is after the Knowledge and Human Development Authority, better known as the KHDA, published their evaluation of the Emirates private schools. Now, overall, the results are good. 25 schools showed improved performance from the previous inspection in 2019 and 20 were rated outstanding. The report also showed that 77% of pupils in Dubai attend private schools rated good or better. And that's compared to 70% during the last full inspection cycle back in the 2018-19 academic year. And you'll notice that that date is pre-pandemic. And one of the really interesting things that we discovered this week, uh, actually in my conversation with uh, a headmistress from GEMS, is that there were no checks during COVID. No one came round to see how the schools were were doing during the pandemic, which means they essentially had to self-moderate and, you know, try to improve on their own, you know, self-start effectively over the last three years, which is really interesting. The other thing that uh, plays in a part here, and one of the reasons I think why parents are so interested in these reports is because, of course, they uh, play a part not just about quality of the school, but also the expense of the school. But other than that, let's be honest, none of us really know how to read these reports. You just took at the top line. Is it outstanding? Is it very good? Is it moderate? You probably don't want the moderate school, but I'm sure there's more complexity to it. And that is why we have called in the experts, specifically one expert, Fiona McKenzie, who is head of education for Carfax Education. What she does what she does not know about schools is not worth knowing. I always find that really difficult, that phrase. I'm sure I've got it wrong. But anyway, Fiona, lovely to have you join us on the line here on Ion Education. How are you? 
I'm very well, thanks, children. Thank you for the introduction. Ah, it's a pleasure. Now tell me, how much stock should parents put in these school inspection results? For example, I pay a fortune for my children's school and it's not outstanding. It's just very good. And, and personally, I'm offended. I want them to do better. Yes, I mean, it, it is an interesting one, isn't it? But I mean, I think the value of the inspections is that they are an independent uh, perspective of the school and they're measured you know we've, we've got 17 18 different curriculums on offer in Dubai it's really hard to kind of have a standard evaluation of all of those different curriculums uh, and for parents to be able to judge where they kind of fit within that so I think it's an incredibly important part and I think it's a key driver in what's really helped standards uh, kind of rise consistently uh, over the years here in Dubai which means that we now have a very robust and I think a very successful education system but I, I do understand what you mean you know the kind of the oh Oh, my school's only very good, why isn't it outstanding? Um, you, that's when you start having to sort of delve into the detail. You know, uh, quite often it can be maybe something that uh, the, the Arab and the Islamic, for example, it's something that often um, trips schools up. Uh, you know, they've tried very hard on that, but it hasn't quite met the kind of criteria. And that can mean that you just stay at that very good level. Um, but I think it is exciting to see that three schools have gone up to outstanding this year. Well, you know, we've increased to 20 outstanding schools this year. Um, and so you know, there is that always that possibility to keep rising through. Okay, so you can improve. And I know that when we spoke to Fatma Belrahif, who is the CEO of the Dubai Schools Inspection Bureau, she did explain that they really do go into the minutiae of the school. They want to know how things are being taught, where they're being taught, the, the, the styles, uh, and also lots about the teachers as well. Is this something that the teachers themselves find stressful? Uh, yes, it is. It, it is a very stressful experience for a school as a whole, um, as, as well as the individual teachers. Um, I think particularly for teachers, if you think about it, mostly you're, you're working with a class of children and you're not often observed by, by a peer group. So you know, that makes it kind of doubly uh, stressful, if you like. I, I remember when I was teaching years ago, having inspectors in the classroom and it, you, know, you feel very sort of on edge uh, through, throughout the whole experience. But what, te- what the inspectors are looking for, you know, particularly in an outstanding school, is outstanding lessons. They want to see the children really Engaged. They want to see high level content um, and they want to know that those, you know, how are those children progressing, uh, you know, with with that kind of teaching and learning culture. OK, so as far as a parent is concerned, is it OK for you to just look at the top line or should you, if you're a responsible parent, be delving into a little bit more of the detail? So, for example, if you've got a child who's very good at sport or very good at drama, can you tease those out of these inspection results? Well, I think the, the inspection results are uh, really monitoring things like students' progress. They're looking at their personal and their social development. Obviously, they're looking at the, the, the teaching and learning in the school. Um, they also are looking at how the curriculum meets all the educational needs of, of the students in that school. Um, and obviously, they're, they're, they're looking at leadership and management. So it's not necessarily going to do a deep dive into the kind of the sporting reputation of that school. Um, it's more about the kind of uh, the, the that would come under the of personal and social development aspects. Um, yes, there is a lot of devil in the detail. I think you're absolutely right. I think most parents, and particularly parents who come to me uh, looking for new schools in Dubai, will say, if you know, I just want an outstanding school. And then I have to say, well, that's all well and good, but 
but actually, you know, six of those schools are actually junior schools. So you're not looking for that. Some of them are Indian curriculum, some of them are French curriculum. Is that what you're looking for? No. So you very rapidly narrow that list down. I always think with any rankings, whether it's school or, or universities, uh, that, that you have to absolutely acknowledge them. But then actually you have to do your own research and kind of work out what, what's the best fit for you. Just because it's an outstanding school doesn't make it the outstanding school for your child. Um, so, yes, by all means, take the banner headline, but also do your own research. Uh, you know, come and talk to people like us, talk to other parents, because there were, you know, each school has its own character and its own ethos. Yes, it really does. And the reason why I agree with you on that, because about six months ago, I'd have said, oh, they're all much of a muchness. But it's just not the case. I went looking at schools in the United Kingdom because we might send our children back when they're 13 to board there. And I was fascinated by even just on a tour of a school, you could get a sense of the different personality of the students that they're turning out. Like, I mean, Dubai, English schools are, are English private schools are very sort of particular in their style in that they really do turn out a type of person. They really do mould a child. Um, But it was really interesting. You could sense a different atmosphere around the school. Now, you have a really global perspective on schools. Overall, how would you rate Dubai's schools? Do you think that children here are getting a good education? Because the fees are really high. I'm glad you say absolutely, but the fees are really high. <laughs> yes, yes, and and you know it, it, it's it's not a cheap option, and obviously you know in other parts of the world you can you can access education uh, for free, and you do have to pay for education here in the in the private schools. But I do think that you know uh, uh, overall the education system out here is really really good, and I think the numbers prove that. I mean, if you look at the kind of uh, the increase in enrolments over the years, in in the past I think people were less confident in the education environment here, and they did send their children back to their home countries or they moved back to their home countries specifically for their children's education uh, but that's no longer the case you know you the children stay here much longer it's very interesting we used to you know in, in the school sort of placement environment we used to uh, you know often advise parents who are moving children back for prep school say to the UK and now that moved to kind of 13 and they might look at boarding schools then. and now we're doing more and more of sort of 16 plus so I think parents are really confident in the educational outcomes of the schools here and students from here go on to top universities all over the world and one of the things I really love is that they look very global from here you know if you want to go to the best marine biology course and you'll look in you know you'll look in the UK but you also look in Australia and you also look in America so I think the internationalism of the education here is a real gift. What are parents preoccupied with now the parents that you're meeting I know there have been some concerns around lots of new students coming into the schools who maybe haven't quite got the standard of English, for example, that you would expect. I know that within my social circle, there's been lots of talk of that. But is that is that a key concern or are there other elements that they're worrying about? Um, I think, you know, obviously, because there's there's been lots of families moving from all over the world to to the UAE. I think people are seeing it as a you know very welcoming environment at the moment. And that does mean that some children haven't got the kind of English language uh, that is is kind of required. But I think the schools are very savvy to that. And a lot of schools have put interventions in place to support those children. Or we certainly do a lot of work with families who come to us for additional English to, you know, to bring them up to speed, ready to start school when they when they've reached that level. Um, so I think you know, schools are very aware of that. Um, But also children, once they're immersed in that kind of English language environment, pick it up very, very quickly. Yeah. uh, And and quite quickly get up to speed. Yeah, we had neighbours, French neighbours who moved in next door to us. The children didn't speak a word of English until about two weeks in. And then they were 
apparently fluent. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah. It was amazing. I know. Loads of people getting in touch on this. Really interesting. Uh, Sandra says, good afternoon. Inspections should not be announced. Everyone knows that the schools change during their inspections. Ask the children and they can tell the difference. Does that happen, Fiona? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, the thing is that you don't know when an inspection is coming. You get four days warning. So you can't sort of be on your best behavior the entire year. But obviously, and you have, that's a very short warning. So it's not like you can turn your entire school around for an inspection. You just haven't got time to do that. So they are inspecting, you know, the, the reality. But obviously, you know, everyone's going to be slightly on their best behavior. So, and, and as we said earlier on, you know, it's quite nerve wracking for teachers. So children will pick up that vibe in the classroom. There's an inspector in that the teacher won't be quite perhaps the relaxed person they might normally be. I actually um, remember myself. I remember teachers coming, being inspected. And in fact, the, the sense, the vibe in the classroom was one of, was collaborative. You know, you wanted your, you had, there was a pride in your school. You wanted it to be scored well and you wanted your teacher to be scored well, or at least that was my vibe. Maybe some of the other students wanted to throw them in deep water. Fiona, as always, an absolute pleasure to have you join us here on Ion Education. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we have been speaking to Fiona McKenzie, Head of Education for Carfax Education. She has a completely sort of global overview of the schools because she helps parents find the right uh, education establishment for their child. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed. And keep your comments coming. So many coming through. Uh, Valerie here, uh, do you know what's interesting is it's the school fees that are getting people riled. Valerie says, my grandson recently enrolled at Exeter University. The fees for an overseas student are less than what my son was paying for him at school here. Interesting stuff. ACOS says, we pay 52,000 dirhams a year for a year four child in a British school. They have 24 kids in their classroom instead of 16. We pay high fees to have smaller classes where the child can develop. The schools increase their revenues by adding more students to the class, but the quality decreased. Is there any rule on how many kids can be in a class? ACOS, interesting that you ask that question. My understanding is that 24 is the most. Do you know I've got Fiona on the line still? Fiona, do you know the answer to that? Um, well, different schools will specify kind of different limits um, uh, for different age groups. So that's really within the kind of school's remit to decide. Some schools have classes as, as big as 30. But I think you're right, you know, at the more premium brand end and the kind of higher the school fees, you do expect to have smaller class sizes. I think we have seen a bit of a growth in that because obviously there's been a cap on the fees for the last three years. But as you can imagine, costs have gone up, teaching costs have gone up, running the school costs have gone up. And I suspect what schools have done is to maybe put a couple of other, you know, a couple of children per class in because that's helped them to get through the the, the sort of school fee uh, freeze. Um, but it'll be interesting now that they can put fees up to see whether that will actually change again. That is so interesting. No one's made that comment before in all my conversations about school fees. So thank you very much indeed, Fiona, for that. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Welcome back to Ion Education. Uh, welcome back to the agenda. Georgia Tolly here, but not for long, just for the next 10 minutes or so. And let's use that time to talk about books. They are notoriously expensive here in the UAE. But if you're looking to stock up, then you're in for a treat because the Big Bad Wolf sale returns to Dubai today with up to 75% off. And you've got books there starting from only two dirhams. Now, the sale's being held at Dubai Studio City from 9 a.m. till 2 a.m. 
I think I read that right. And it will be free to enter. Joining me now to talk through how they manage their sales is Andrew Yap, who is the co-founder of Big Bad Wolf Books. Joining me in this studio, Andrew, great to have you join us. Tell me, how did this sale come about? Because you've been running for a few years now, haven't you? Yeah, we all started in Malaysia and we thought that, you know, it was just a problem in Malaysia where books were not affordable or accessible. After a few years, we made a huge difference in Malaysia and we started getting calls, you know, to to go to our neighbouring countries. And then we realised that this is not a Malaysia-only problem. The whole world is facing this problem and 90% of the world, you know, they can read, but they are not reading. There's no reading culture. There's no reading habit. Yeah, and so uh, in 20. 16 we ventured out of malaysia we went to indonesia and thailand and there was there's no turning back now we are in 15 different countries and i would like to to i'm so proud that uh, we finally made it in africa a few months ago we did an event in kenya and tanzania and the response was amazing you know given that books are so scarce in africa do you know i get a particular type of excitement when I go into a bookshop. And I have to say, I went to the Big Bad Wolf sale a few years ago and it is immense. Like I don't think, unless you've been, I don't think you can really process how big it is and how many books there are. And they are cheap. How do you charge so little when normally books are, you know, top dollar here? Yeah, first and foremost, we are a mission-based company and the mission is to change the world through books. You know, just like what Nelson Mandela said, in the most powerful weapon to change a nation is through education. And books are one of the best forms of education, right? And it's a volume game for us. It's also another reason why we are in 15 different countries, 30 over cities around the world and growing because most bookstores are localized. When you are localized, you don't have the volume, right? So a bookstore will generally buy, you know, 50, 100 copies where we go up to a million copies or even 100,000 copies per title, right? So we have the economics of scale. But the burden is we have to open up markets, you know, and grow really quick to be able to sell all the books that we buy. So you need to shift those. I mean, extraordinary that you buy so many of them. How do you choose your titles? Believe it or not, you know, uh, we actually judge a book by its cover. <laughs> because if, if you put a lot of effort in the cover and the copy and, and all, right, definitely the, the same effort will go into the book. Yeah, okay, but but we do have a lot of data. I mean, just kidding. We have a lot of data <laughs> throughout the, the throughout the world, and and uh, so we generally know you know what people would like to read. And if it's a new country that we have not been to, kids' books are always the number one seller. So sixty percent kids and forty percent for the adults. And then after the event with all the data, we can gauge better and come back better and stronger. Just like this year in Dubai, I believe that. It's going to be the best ever in terms of variety. You must be hyper aware of, of, of trends in books at the moment as well. Is there a sort of growth in self-help books, in business books, or are people trying to escape it all post-pandemic and read fiction? Definitely, um, there's a huge demand for books on self-help, especially spirituality, you know, mindfulness and all. I think the, the sad reality of life today is that, you know, our handphone has become a curse now. Mm. You know, it used to be so amazing when our first interaction with a, with a smartphone, wow, we can do so much, right? Now we want to keep it away, right? And and it, it has made us, you know, humans, you know, made, made our lives so fast-paced. We want to take a step back and books like this helps a lot. So books on, on 
self help is definitely the one of the biggest movers around the world now. They're flying off the shelves. If you had shelves, I mean, that's what's amazing about the Big Bad Book Fair is that they <laughs> they sell so many books that they're not on shelves. They're piled in like high blocks. You know, like two meter high, well, one meter high blocks. Yeah, they're like cities, you. like like in New York City. You know? It is like yeah. a book city. Now, why is it important that we buy books and have them in the house? Because they are often cheaper to buy digitally. And I, I mean, that did seem for some time where the trend was going that everyone be reading on a Kindle. I think, you know, first and foremost, out of sight, out of mind, right? You, you need to have books around you, even if you, you bought books and have not read. But if you keep, you keep seeing it in front of you, right? One day you'll pick it up. Yeah, everyone's yeah. got their bed stand of yes. books, haven't they? Correct, correct, I've, got, yeah. I've got eight on it at the moment waiting to be read. But I do see them every time I go to bed and they do remind me, you're correct, right. Correct, correct. And then, you know, sometimes you just read, you know, five pages, ten pages. You don't have to, to jump in and, and spend a lot of time. Yeah, and I have to say my favourite way of falling asleep is that moment when you're reading and then all of a sudden that the book sort of falls forward onto your nose. It's yeah. the most relaxing way to fall asleep and it's certainly very different to staring at a blue screen. Andrew, thank you so much for joining in. You've really encouraged me. I will be coming and stocking up on books in the near future. You're, you're open for a week, aren't you, over at Dubai Studio City? Yes, we are open from today until the 16th of April. And uh, we're open for a few hours now. 9am, there's a queue of people coming in and it's really busy now. So and like you're to... really open till 2am? Yes, we are open till 2am. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing to have you join us, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed. That's Andrew Yap, the co-founder of the Big Bad Wolf Books Sale. It's taking place right now today uh, and it's at Dubai Studio City from 9am until 2am. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Welcome back to our schools special. It is Eye on Education every single Friday from 11am until 1pm right here on The Agenda. And it is my great pleasure today to talk about a subject that is in, you know, that's been raised basically in celebration of the holy month of Ramadan and also in anticipation of the gifting period of Eid. And in a connection to that, Amazon have enlisted the help of students and pupils with disabilities to design their gift cards. It's a really lovely idea. More than 200 children from Dubai's Rashid Centre for People of Determination painted pictures, including one design that I particularly like, which is of a glowing lantern with an Eid Mubarak message. Now, those attending the art classes and who took part in these designs have a range of conditions, including cerebral palsy, autism and sensory learning and physical disabilities. And the effect on the kids, the the impact that uh, designing these cards has had on them is really quite far-reaching. It's really quite touching. And joining me now to talk through this, what, what is a region-wide project, is Kalika Tripathi from Amazon. Join me in the studio because we discovered you work in the same building, which is very convenient indeed. How are you? Excellent. Nice really? to be here, Georgia. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, tell me, how did this partnership uh, between Amazon and the Rashid Centre come about? So this is a genesis of something which uh, we have done in different ways over the last couple of years. It's the second year for the UAE. Last year, we worked with an artist to design uh, certain designs for uh, Aid as well with Abdullah Lutfi, who is a uh, very gifted UAE artist on the autism spectrum. 
And uh, this year, we wanted to go a step further and uh, include some of our younger artists. So we had this brilliant opportunity to collaborate with the Rashid Center for People of Determination, where as part of the extensive therapeutic program, they use art. So art is a cornerstone of that. So it was really a coming together of technology along with a cultural occasion to showcase the gifts of these marvellous artists that we have in the UAE. And so what products have you actually produced? What do you actually get? Right. So the e-gift card is an electronic gift card, which lives on our Amazon.ae page. There's a gift card page that customers can visit. And what they will see as a result of this collaboration is two designs. The first design has been done by an artist, Zainab Naveed, and uh, it's bright yellow. That's the first thing that stands out. It has a bold design, very much in keeping with Zainab's personality. So there's a very interesting video, Georgia, which is on our Insta page in AE. I would encourage listeners to have a look at it and have a listen directly from Zainab. The second design, we took a slightly different approach where we also wanted to showcase the importance of the collective when it comes to inclusion and diversity. So this was designed by an entire class of students, the ILG3. So we have two designs which are available. And also Abdullah Latfi's design from the previous year is still available. Yeah, I've been just, you might be able to hear me tapping in the background. I've been checking those out right now. I mean, how did you choose which children you wanted to get involved in this project? Because I imagine you could have gone to any school and the kids would have jumped at the chance. So we personally believe and uh, subscribe to the approach that Rashid Center is taking. We really admire their work. And I would say we were humbled and we were really fortunate to be invited in to, into that universe and to be allowed to participate and collaborate. So we, we count that as a privilege. And uh, when that was made available to us, we said, absolutely, we will take a look at this opportunity and see what we can do and uh, showcase the work done by the young artists there. So every student had an opportunity to submit their work and uh, we allowed them to work in uh, the, whatever was their preferred format, whether it was ind individual submissions or group submissions. And then from that, we picked a couple. And is, the start, is this the start of a sort of beautiful partnership, the start of something that will continue on into the future? I know that you've been doing these types of gift cards regionally as well in Saudi too. Yes, that's right. In Saudi, we collaborated with the Al-Irada Foundation, which is for uh, talented uh, artists also on the disability spectrum. And uh, absolutely, we look forward to continuing these collaborations with Rashid Center. We've uh, made a contribution as well to support their work in terms of their tools and the other capabilities that they're nurturing amongst these young students. So we will be happy to learn from them and grow as they grow. That's very fair. You have to pay the artist, don't you? <laughs> you know, even if it's a privilege to have your 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 work displayed on the Amazon website, you know, it's still it's still right that they uh, that they have uh, that they benefit from it as well. It's been a great pleasure to have you join us in the studio here. Thank you very much for telling us all about that uh, that project there between Amazon and Dubai's Rashid Center for People of Determination. It really sort of, I suppose, it really captures the 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 
the spirit of Ramadan and the spirit of, of celebrating Eid as a community. So it's lovely to have you join us in the studio. Thank you, Kalika Tripathi there from Amazon, who came all the way from downstairs to come into our studio. <laughs> Thank now you, we know you're there. Well, you, there's no escape. I'll just pop up and ask yeah. you to comment on all sorts of things. Anytime. Yeah, I'll be like, e-commerce, how's it going? Black Friday or White Friday or whichever one everyone does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy, happy to discuss. Yeah, Fantastic. Thank you very Thank much you, indeed. Right. Yes, you are listening right here to Ion Education on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.